This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's Friday, June 30th. Coming up on today's show, conversation with Brian Hamburger and the advice he gives to advisors. You know, this is not an election year. We all seem to be talking about politics anyway. You know what you're not talking about? Your debt. There's a new study of 2,000 people ages 18 and older, and there's strong agreement that talking with your family about money could improve the gender wealth gap. Two out of three people say that. But even though pretty much everybody's in agreement that talking about money can be beneficial, 62% say they never talk about money. 63% say they don't discuss it with family. 75% say they don't discuss it with friends. And even 46%, nearly half, say they never talk about money even with their spouse or partner. In fact, one out of three say they'd rather stand in line at the DMV than have to talk about money, which is a pejorative comment, both about money and the DMV. Only one-third of Americans say they've talked to a financial advisor, but three-fourths have bought a lottery ticket. And 25% say they get advice from a fortune teller. Well, as someone who's been in the financial advisory field for nearly 40 years, I find all of this disconcerting and a little bit insulting. By the way, 28% know how much money Elon Musk is worth, but only 24% know how much they themselves are worth. Really? You don't know how much money you have, but you know how much money Elon Musk has, which basically is a way of saying you know he has a lot and you don't have any. This is really not something to have secrets involving. There is no value, there is no benefit to keeping secrets within the family. If you're the adult children, you need to talk to mom and dad because guess what happens if they run out of money? They're going to turn to you for help. And for spouses to not know how much money their spouses are earning, how much money you have in savings and investments, how much you're spending on bills to pay the lifestyle, how much money you have in debt, how much money you've accumulated in retirement accounts, this is simply not healthy. So go ahead, blame me have the conversation and simply say, I didn't want to talk to you about this, but Rick Edelman said I had to ask. And so I'm asking. Go ahead. Blame me. I'll take the heat. Coming up next, a conversation with Brian Hamburger. There's an entire universe of independent advisors you really don't know anything about. Brian will tell us all about it. Meet Schwab Intelligent Income, a simple, modern way to pay yourself from your portfolio. Overcome the complexity of income needs in retirement with automated tax-smart withdrawals that you can start, stop, or adjust at any time without penalty, plus ongoing monitoring so you'll always know where you stand. And since lower fees means more money for you to invest, you pay no advisory fee. Available with Schwab Intelligent Portfolios. Visit schwab.com slash intelligent income, a modern approach to wealth management. 
The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Listeners of this program enjoy fresh perspectives on the financial topics that matter most, especially the rise of exponential technologies. And right now, there may be no faster-moving tech story than the rise of artificial intelligence. But despite some exciting new developments, like the launch of ChatGPT, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of AI's potential. So, which companies will have staying power? As an investor, it's hard to know, which is why Global X ETFs specializes in thematic investing strategies that harness the potential of numerous companies involved in an emerging trend, all in a single trade. Explore our investment approach along with our latest research on the emergence of AI at globalxetfs.com/insights. You're listening to The Truth About Your Future. Maybe you're watching it, too, on our video cast. I'm going to take you behind the scenes here um, because normally on this show, we just talk about what's going on in the world of personal finance, investment management, and, and the business of advice. But I really want to show you what's going on in the world of advisors with someone who uh, is a household name within the advisory community. So I'm really happy that my friend Brian Hamburger is joining us on the program right now. Brian is president and CEO of Market Council and the Hamburger Law Firm. Brian, great to see you, my friend. It's always good to see you, my friend. Brian is one of the nation's top legal and compliance experts for independent financial advisors and wealth management firms. In addition to being the head of the Hamburger Law Firm, Brian is also the founder and CEO and president of Market Council Consulting, which is the top business and regulatory compliance consultancy to independent advisors in the country. He's routinely named as one of the industry's most influential people. He's often called on to meet with Congress and the SEC. And Brian is a member of my faculty at DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, where he teaches one of our modules for advisors, focusing, as you would imagine, on law and compliance. You can learn more about Brian, by the way, at marketcouncil.com. We've got that link in our show notes here on the podcast. Brian, how long have we known each other? <laughs> well, you'd have a better memory than me because I think we've known each other since I was a kid. I know I only look 25 now, but I remember hearing about you when I was working at my father's investment advisory firm. I was probably 14 or 15 years old. You know, you you had a reputation back then. And by the way, you still have the same <laughs> reputation now, Rick. I'm afraid so, yeah. Uh, but you were... You were kind of the anti-financial advisor. You were the guy that like, you know, didn't go to the group events. You were you were the guy that wanted to do things differently. And um, you know, I came to learn that, you know, you just refused to be defined by, you know, how things had been done, uh, which intrigued me. Uh I um I'm very much keen on uh, knowing the rules, but I'm also keen on questioning them at the same time. And so I think uh, I think for many years you and I developed in uh, kinship of sorts. Uh, for sure, and uh, I've spoken at Market Council, and and it's one of the top events in our industry. Hundreds and hundreds of advisors go. It's kind of like a place you got to be at if you're going to be in this industry. But it's unusual, Brian, for you to be an attorney who is focused in a legal practice aimed at financial advisors. I mean that that's a bit uncommon. How did you decide to devote your practice to the advisory field? Well, you know, I um, I grew up from from those types of internships, right? Working for for my dad, and, you know, who who made his way to the industry by way of selling insurance, right, and then joining an independent broker dealer, and then becoming an investment advisor. 
And every time I would speak to him or, or his colleagues, they would be frustrated, but they weren't even able to really frame out the problem. They would just say, oh, this compliance department is preventing me from doing this. And I knew that I didn't have the patience to be sitting at the dining room table working with people on their college savings and their investment allocation. Not to say that that's not really worthy work, but I just knew that that wasn't in me. But what I thought I could do is help amplify their efforts, right? And help support financial advisors in everything they wanted to do so that this notion of independent advice didn't mean somehow getting less legal guidance or less regulatory compliance guidance than working for one of the large financial conglomerates. And let's elaborate on that because I think it's a distinction that is not only incredibly important, most consumers are not really fully aware of this. We think of financial advisors, I think most of us tend to naturally think of outfits like, you know, Merrill Lynch or Wells Fargo, these big, huge organizations with 100,000 employees and 10 or 20,000 financial advisors. And in those firms, they'll have an army of compliance officers. I mean, literally an army. At JP Morgan, I think they have 40,000 people working in their compliance department. And their job is to make sure that their advisors are following all the rules, that they're documenting correctly, they're serving the clients properly, that they're doing everything you need to do under the law. But Aside from those big wirehouses, those big brokerage firms, there's another entire industry of independent financial advisors. These are mom and pop shops in many cases. A sole practitioner, think of the local accountant or the local butcher or the local dry cleaner. They're just small company doing business in a local community, serving 100 or 200 clients, and they are not backed by a big bank or brokerage firm. They don't have an army of professionals to help make sure they're following the SEC's rules or FINRA's rules. They need to follow the rules, but they don't have the infrastructure to do it. And that's the kind of advisor you devote your service to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, and these these folks, just because they don't have the same type of brand name, they shouldn't be forgotten, right? Unfortunately, most consumers know the brands that you just referenced because they're in the newspaper, you know, often for wrongdoing lately. And, uh, and, and that's a shame, right? Because the tens of thousands of financial advisors that work at these firms are largely really good people and excellent professionals. But you can do a thousand or thousands of things right. It's the one thing that you do wrong that ends up in the newspaper or the publications, right? And so I don't think most consumers are aware of the myriad of complexity that exists within the securities industry, right? They just kind of feel that it's the same type of rules as any other retail business, but it's not, right? The securities industry doesn't only have the SEC looking after it. Each state has its own version of the SEC looking after it. But on top of that, credentialed professionals within the space, such as yourself, have to answer to the credentialing authority uh, as its own organization. And if they are a registered representative, they also have to answer to FINRA, which is a self-regulatory organization. And by the way, I'm just getting started, right? If they also <laughs> sell insurance and you mentioned accountants, uh, you know, it really is a tangled web that advisors, financial advisors generically have to navigate through. And so, uh, you know, independent advisors used to be at a disadvantage. You know, years ago, You'd go to one of these brand name shops because they would have access to more securities, access to greater capabilities. And, you know, it was the old, remember the commercials like Winnie F. Hutton talks, 
right? It was kind of giving you the sense that they knew something you didn't know. Yeah. I think internet and technology in, in a large role have just displaced all of that. Products are unilaterally available, right? If you, you know, if you can get a product at one of these major wirehouses, you can get it within, uh, with an independent advisor. Really what's become premium over the last few decades is the notion of advice. And I think what consumers are learning when they peel back the onion is that independent advisors are able to give them a more objective advice model. And really that's what consumers are valuing, right? There's no cost anymore to trade, right? You can buy and sell securities on your own. You can open up, you know, Robinhood account or any other type of self-directed investment and not pay a dime for a trade. And that's no different, you know, when you work with these firms, but it's the advice that's really at a premium. And, uh, and that's what independent advisors do better than anyone. And you've highlighted something that's really important when you say that the uh, advisor as an independent is going to be able to serve the client in a way that an advisor at a wirehouse or a major brokerage firm can't. It is because of that independence. In other words, if you are an advisor with a major brokerage firm, you're an employee of that firm, which means you have to answer to the boss who's predominantly concerned about the shareholders, the owners of the business. But when you are an independent advisor, you're the owner of the business. It's just, there is nobody between you and your client. That's all there is. There is no shareholder. There is no management. There isn't any third party to whom we are answerable to. And that allows the advisor to focus exclusively on the client's best interests, which is not something that clients tend to enjoy when they're dealing with an insurance agent or a stockbroker at those big outfits. Yeah, that's right. And most, you know, most independent advisors are advisor owned organizations, right? And you talked about the best interest. That's not to be confused with this best interest standard that's been touted lately that applies to, to broker dealers, the best interest standard that you're referring to is the fiduciary obligation. Right. And so registered investment advisors have that obligation, which means that they have a legal duty to place the client's interests ahead of their own. And how great is that, right? To put your hands and your trust in someone who's going to be there, you know, through thick and thin, through all your you know, through all your children's, uh, you know, permutations and college and weddings and all that. How great is that to have someone who has a legal obligation to place your interests ahead of theirs? There's few things that are more comfortable than that. And the shocking aspect of that, though, Brian, is that most people assume that their advisor will behave that way. But when you're dealing with someone at a brokerage firm or at an insurance company or at a bank, they don't have that obligation. No. And you talk about how they, uh, you know, those folks work for others. It's more than that, even because it means the compensation systems are crafted by others, and there may be greater incentives to sell something that is not aligned with the client's interest, or not at least 100% aligned with the client's interest. You know, we often use this term uh, on the technology side, where we say, you know, if if you're not paying for it, you're the product, right? Right. Uh, and, and it's kind of true here as well, right? Where if you're not paying someone for the advice that you're getting. They're making their money somehow. And typically it's by selling you product that isn't the best investment vehicles for you. And if nothing else, they're getting compensation from the sale of that product because they got to get paid somehow or other. They're entitled to make a living. Now, what you're describing is an environment where we have two worlds. We have the big established traditional Wall Street machine, which has been around since 1792. And then we have the independent advisory community, 
which is far newer. I'm among the first gen. I helped to invent, as you know, the independent advisory channel. And I was among the, the early folks adopting this. Back when I got started in the 1980s, there were only a handful of us. It was very rare to come upon somebody who was operating their own business as an independent advisor, as a fiduciary serving their client's best interests. Today, there are 300,000 RIAs in the country. Has it surprised you at how big the independent advisory field has gotten? I, I, I marvel in it. I really do. I, uh, you know, without checking myself, I still think of it as that cottage industry. Uh, and, and I'm reminded of that when I speak to people outside this industry, that it's still relatively small and unknown compared to some of these big brands that are just throwing marketing dollars around. Um, you know, it's maturing, but I think we're still, uh, I really think we're still in the early innings when it comes to uh, to independent advisors. Uh, they're just starting to attract uh, outside investment, you know, which pros and cons, right, to uh, to outside investment. But it's uh, it's really becoming a bona fide contender when it comes to options within uh, the securities industry. Um, and it's not the advice that has changed. Um, it's that these independent advisors are all using those major firms as custodians for the assets, right? So the assets are protected by huge global organizations that have all the checks and balances, uh, but they've bifurcated the advice. And that's what's being provided by these, uh, by these independent firms. It's a model that no captive employer can stop. Uh, we've learned, you know, here in America, we have, you know, talk about 1792. We've learned that there's really no force that can stop this notion of freedom and independence. And when an advisor finally realizes how to remove those shackles of, uh, of servitude from their employer and how to redirect their primary obligations to their clients, I honestly believe, Rick, there's nothing that can stop them. We have a name for them. We do. We call them breakaway brokers. These are advisors who leave the big institutions and go open their own shop. When they realize they can make more money, they cut out the middleman and the infrastructure and the overhead of the big firm. They get rid of, the, as you said, the shackles of being told what to do, how to do it, who to do it for. And they can just focus on serving their client the way that they know the client needs to be served. So you said a moment ago that you think that this independent industry is only going to get bigger and better. It's only just getting started. What makes you say that? Why do you think it's going to keep on growing? Well, I think that uh, I think the people that remain at these large organizations, uh, I think they're the, most of them are there for the wrong reasons. They're there out of fear. We saw that uh, following the pandemic uh, because I would hear from people to say, hey, I would love to go independent but my clients love coming downtown to my big office and they love the plush settings and the, you know, the a building, right. That, uh, that they come into. And then suddenly in the pandemic, when they couldn't meet with their clients or clients couldn't come down there, they found that their clients still were drawn to them, still had an affinity to them. It had nothing to do with the, you know, the plush settings and the administrative assistant who goes and, you know, fetches them and brings them to the meeting room. N none of that, is why the clients uh, have such loyalty towards their advisor. And so they started to realize that. They started to realize that they don't need all the, um, uh, the material trappings. Uh, and they start to ask these questions about, well, 
I'm told that I can only do this at my firm. How would I do this elsewhere? Right. So we start to go through a discovery process and it's just the tip of the iceberg, right? We've only seen a relatively small number of folks move on to be breakaway brokers, but it's happening in increments, right? Remember uh, the, the whole independent broker dealer movement, which was, you know, kind of on the way towards full independence uh, where people would become agents for, uh, for brokerage firms that weren't wirehouses, right? They weren't, you know, creating their own proprietary product. They weren't necessarily doing investment banking, but they were still broker dealers. You know, now people are realizing that they don't necessarily need that in many situations. I just don't think you can stop the force. But there are issues that advisors face in going independent or being an independent advisor. And and I have a feeling, a little more than a feeling because of my experience with all these advisors, there are issues they don't even know about that can get them into trouble. That's true. Talk about some of those. You know, it's, uh, it's surprising for, for advisors who so often focus on the quality of their advice, um, how they don't necessarily look for those qualities in the advice that they're receiving. When I say that, uh, I think of countless advisors who have decided to move from their employment to their own firm without seeking the advice of independent counsel. Um, and and there'll, there'll be a misstep along the way. And we'll get that call, right? We'll, you know, we'll get the call saying, I know I should have called you, but I'm trying to save some money or I didn't think I needed to. And the advice that they're going on is akin to a client walking in saying, hey, I constructed this portfolio. And they say, and you, know, you as the advisor say, well, what was the basis for that? Well, this is what my buddy did, right? This is what my <laughs> friend did. He seems really smart. Every scenario is different, right? We just had a major team, billions of assets under management that is looking to leave a, a well-known firm. And they, they constructed this entire transition plan. And right before they pulled the trigger, someone raised their hand and said, hey, have we even looked at X, Y, and Z? And the answer was no, right? And so if you think about it, some of these advisors are taking decades of their career, right? All the goodwill that they've developed with building up their clientele and compromising it, sacrificing it because they're used to being the smartest person in the room. And let's face it, right? Advisors don't make for great clients. I love them. They're all of my clients, but they're a little challenged in that they, they have a hard time asking for help to achieve their objectives. Well, I'll tell you, as an advisor, I know why advisors are lousy clients of lawyers, because you're in my way. I want to serve my client. I want to find a client. I want to get a client. I want to get more assets from the client and manage those assets. And I want to do my job. And you're making me fill out paperwork. You're, you're preventing me from saying things that I might want to say. You're forcing me to document, and that takes a lot of time, and it distracts me from the time I want to spend with my client. In other words, Brian, you're a pain in the butt. You're uh, right about that. You're absolutely, you're not the first person to tell me that, Ray. <laughs> you have to understand. Go back to what we talked about earlier. You can do a thousand things right, and unfortunately, the world today will judge you on that one major misstep, right? And so our job is to ensure that you can harness all of that success and not find yourself redirecting your time towards a problem. So you said advisors are really terrible clients and you're saying that with love in your heart, I know, but why then do you want to serve them? What makes you want to put up with uh, the annoying clients? You know, they, they're lousy clients when they start with us because they have a hard time articulating the ask, 
right? They're good at directing because that's what they do, right? They're used to being in their space, the smartest person in the room, and they have to exude confidence. And so it's hard to strip them from that and say, listen, it's okay. Like this is a safe place. Talk to me about your vulnerabilities. Talk to me about your concerns, but let's really talk about what you're trying to accomplish so that I can help you uh, accomplish that. Once we get there, then they make for amazing clients because they're incredibly grateful and they they really understand the value of objective advice intuitively. It's just hard for them to get into that mode at first. So are most of them coming to you before they have gone independent or after? Uh, almost all of them come to us before they make the move to independence. And so we'll work with them on all of the complexities associated with the breakaway broker process, moving to independence. Uh, and in general, big buckets that includes uh, their employment transition. So formulating a, a plan for them to go from where they are uh, to independence, because I think most consumers don't realize this, but their advisor typically has a lot of legal restrictions, right? If, they're, if their advisor isn't calling them when they make the move, it's because they're legally restrained from doing so, right? Everything has to be well orchestrated in order to ensure that we don't have a misstep and we don't have in, in the securities industry we have a lot of employment transitions that end up with a temporary restraining order, some type of restraints where the advisor is stuck and they can't, they can't do much. The other big bucket is, is a business startup, right? Helping like any other business in America, right? Helping them start up a, a new business and the type of business it is, where it's situated, who's going to own the business and, and all the governance documents. And then the third area is the regulatory area. So helping them with not only registration, but drafting all of those lovely disclosure documents that everyone loves to read, drafting all of the client agreements, drafting all the policies and procedures for the firm, and helping install that initial regulatory compliance framework so that the firm has a good understanding of how to operate, not only how to operate their business, but how to operate as good stewards within the securities industry. So within all of that, any lessons learned come to mind? I got a lot of lessons learned, but you know, most of my lessons that I learn are as a business owner, right? Because at the end of the day, I am similarly situated to my clients where, you know, I, I started this business. I started market counsel and the hamburger law from 22 years ago. Um, and so, you know, that's where I spend, that's the role that I'm primarily involved in. And yeah, I, I, I learned a lot for sure. Uh, wish I could rewind and maybe uh, uh, put those lessons into practice earlier. But, you know, I learned primarily that, you know, showing up and putting forth uh, effort each and every day, consistent effort, uh, beats the extraordinary one every day of the week. It, you know, that seldom amazing spurt that you get from some employees um, doesn't, doesn't give your colleagues the trust and confidence that you're going to be there. Um, and you're going to be uh, delivering for them uh, consistently. Uh, I learned, I learned that failure is a byproduct of success. Uh, you know, not to be, not to be so hard on myself. I tell my kids that I, you know, I fail each day. Uh, just depends upon what time before I get my first failure. And you know, we we use a lot of sports references in business, but the reality is there's really not a clock. There's not a shot clock that's running, right? So. That failure, as long as that's kind of a a step along the way, well, you know, you as a business owner define when the game is done. And so I tend to, I tend to be stubborn. I tend to just continue to go at it until that is not the end result. 
um, and eventually um, eventually come out on top. And I guess the other thing that I would I would think of is just you know business process and continuous improvement into everything that we do. It is it is core to who who we are. And so every time we finish a project, every time that we close a dispute, um, we're always getting together and saying, what could we have done better? How can we improve upon this? Uh, what is you know what was the client experience here? How can that you know be better? And just asking a series of questions that continually allows us to to chase uh, that standard of perfection, the elusive standard. And what you're describing really are traits of a successful entrepreneur, not merely an attorney. Uh, and and to your entrepreneurship, you know most lawyers are frankly content at being lawyers. That's why they got into law. But that wasn't enough for you, Brian. You created the Market Council Summit. It's, as I mentioned, one of the top conferences in the industry. Explain for folks who are not familiar what the Market Council Summit is and and why did you create it? You know, I started out as a compliance workshop, so it had far more humble beginnings, right? We started as a compliance workshop uh, located a couple miles from our office. It was 35 people in the first year and very logical extension of the regulatory compliance work we were doing. But the next year, uh, we expanded the capabilities to cover all the different areas in which we practice. And what we realized is we were not getting the compliance folks, but rather the CEOs of, uh, of these independent advisors. Doubled our attendance that year, doubled our attendance the year after. Um, and it's gotten to the point that people call it like the Davos of wealth management, right? People have called it the, um, you know, the, uh, the conglomerate of industry CEOs. And really, it is a, a meeting place. Uh, it's a community of uh, of CEOs of independent wealth management firms located throughout the United States, and they're coming together to have a common conversation. They're coming together in a neutral ground because you know we're not beholden to any one large organization, and they're really coming together to debate one another and to engage in dialogue, which just isn't done that much anymore. Uh, it's become a real community. Uh, and it's become a symbiotic component of the work that we do. Um, so we have this conference and we bring together all of these top wealth management firms from across the industry and the heads of these wealth management firms. And lo and behold, you know, these are many firms that we render legal advice to throughout the year. And they're firms that we help run their regulatory compliance programs you know, throughout the year um, and consult with them on business issues. And so it really is just the icing of the cake. And it gives us an opportunity to go from these Zoom calls to actually shaking hands in person and even giving hugs every now and then. It's uh, it's a lot of fun uh, event and very impactful in the industry for sure. Um, so given these two, they're very different, putting together a major conference versus operating a law practice. So what does a typical day look like for you? I don't think they're that different at all. I think that people characterize uh, what I do and they, they just think, well, what you do, you must do what other lawyers do. And I I promise you my day looks nothing like uh, any other lawyer I know. It's, it's far more uh, creative. Uh, than people would ever think, and I uh, and, and I love that. Uh, I go from uh, design to solving complex problems to advocacy to utilizing our network and connections to help influence uh, outcomes to serving as like our tech maven within the company. All all within an hour. I mean, I just kind of swing from vine to vine. Maybe at some point someone will uh, classify me, uh, you know, with uh, attention deficit disorder. 
but until then, I like to just call it curiosity. Uh, I like to be involved in a lot of things. Uh, I get I get bored, you know, with the uh, the mundane. I'm, uh, I'm 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 obsessed with business strategy. I'm obsessed with I'm obsessed with the client experience and business process and standards, um, you know, and and really good design and. It's probably a huge strain on my productivity because I don't focus on any one thing for all that long. I know what you're saying. I've often been accused in in, in my company of uh, chairing the idea of the day club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've always said as the CEO, I have the best job in the world because I get to create the problems and make everybody else solve them. That's uh, a very accurate description. I'm going to use that. <laughs> so does your family even know what you do for a living? Uh, my kids do um, because they each have worked here. Um, so they have a really keen idea as to uh, you know as as to what I do. Beyond that, I um, uh, I got a great conversation starter. You know, when they want to know what I do, I say, well, I uh, I do regulatory compliance for wealth management firms, and that is the, the end of the conversation. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's, like I don't talk about being a lawyer because I know I'm going to get the you know questions about some legal advice. I don't talk about running a conference. I don't talk about anything else that I do. I just use that. And it just kills all conversations. Actually, it kills all conversations except once. And I'll tell you this quick story. I was uh, I was headed back on a red eye the night before we opened our conference. Um, and like I often do, I'm writing my speech on the flight there. And so, uh, you know, I get into, um, I go to sit in my, my upgraded seat in first class and I'm sitting next to Sinbad, right? Huh. And... He wants to engage in conversation, right? And I don't, right? And so um, he asked me a few, you know, polite questions and I kind of give him the short answers. And then he says to me, so what do you do? And I figured I'm going to use that same line and it's going to kill this conversation. And I tell him, I said, I, um, I do regulatory compliance work for wealth management firms. And he turns to me full on and he says, fascinating. Tell me all about that. <laughs> and so for the next, uh, you know, for the next hour, he really did have a bona fide interest in investing and in securities and uh, made me read through my speech and gave me some, gave me some tips on, on timing. And it, it was uh, definitely an unexpected uh, plane ride. That's awesome. And I think that's a testament to his creativity and why he's so successful. So let's make this tactical and practical for our audience. Uh, we have both financial advisors listening to this show as well as investors and consumers. So give us a piece of advice for each one of them. We'll start with the advisor. What do you recommend for the advisors? For 22 years, we've, we've had a tagline uh, at Market Council called the advisor's advisor. Uh, and I think every advisor deserves their own advisor. Um, and it not necessarily only for legal advice. I think they should also have their own financial advisor. I think they should also have their own health or medical advisor. Um, I think that as smart as advisors are, they can't discount the benefit of having uh, an objective party look at them uh, and tell them sometimes things that they don't want to hear. Maybe it's things that they should hear and, um, uh, and will help them overcome some of their hesitations. But I think every advisor needs to go out and get their own advisor. From a consumer perspective, um, I think they, um, they should recognize that the uh, financial markets, security markets, securities markets are, are very, very complex, but they should not be intimidated by that complexity. Maybe a little hesitant, right? They should read all of the incredibly boring stuff 
me and my and another lawyers uh, write because th- th- those words have meaning, right? Those words describe relationships and describe uh, expectations, um, and they themselves should have some degree of uh, objective advice at their disposal, whether it's uh, a holistic and comprehensive financial planner, a wealth management firm, or investment advisor. Um, they don't have to go out and get everything, but they should have a sounding board. And I'm not talking about a message board necessarily. I'm talking about a professional that they can call upon and get sound objective advice uh, because it's going to allow them to sleep at night. It's easy to just hit buy on an investment, but when you start to add up all those dollars and cents and the efforts and uh, work that went into all of them, people just ought to pause for a moment and, and say, you know, is this something I really want to do? That's Brian Hamburger, the president and CEO of Market Council and the Hamburger Law Firm. And if you'd like to learn more about Brian, you're a financial advisor, you can reach him at marketcouncil.com. And we've got that link in our show notes today. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, my friend. You know, I'm not sure how you're enjoying this podcast. Some people listen to it. Some people read it. And you can get the transcript at the website. The link is in your show notes. But the Friday edition of this podcast every week is also a video cast. And you can not only listen or read this podcast, you can watch it too. Just visit thetafe.com. That link is in the show notes as well. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Amid inflation, rising rates, and a host of other economic challenges, volatility has been one of the few constants lately. But as listeners of this show know better than anyone, it's important to look past the short-term headlines and focus on the bigger picture. Despite the ups and downs of the news cycle, exponential technologies continue to advance, shaping a world of new possibilities in engineering, transportation, healthcare, and renewable energy. At Global X ETFs, we offer a diversified product lineup, including risk management solutions to navigate the storm, along with thematic strategies targeting the growth opportunities of tomorrow. Whatever your goals, visit GlobalXETFs.com to explore how our research and insights may help you achieve your goals. Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Meet Carmen, an everyday person who likes working in the garden, hosting dinner parties with friends, and listening to live music. She also participates in progress by investing in a fund that supports innovative ideas. Invesco QQQ ETF allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be an engineer to help push progress forward. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube. Follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Have a great Independence Day holiday weekend. We're off Monday and Tuesday. See you again on Wednesday. 
The truth about your future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors Inc. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truth AYF.com. <laughs> 